art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. <coughs> Excuse me. The power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Holy Spirit, please come in your power. Oh, come with your specificity so that we are not vague. We're not vague in what you are speaking to us today. Um, and we ask that you would set us free from anything that might have a hook in us. Lord, there's a powerful verse in the gospel narrative where just before you went to the cross, you said, Satan comes, but he finds nothing in me. Thank you, Lord, that the enemy had no hooks in you. And we pray that you would continue to work in us so that he has no hooks in us. And help us today as we talk about the, uh, the matters of the heart and see how it played out in the book of Acts chapter 5. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now we've been talking about deception. We've been talking about, uh, you know, destruction, persecution. We've been talking about those, uh, the idea of preoccupation. But uh, today um, I, I want to talk to you about one other matter of the heart. And it is the idea of pollution. The idea of trying to do a good thing. Do you, know, do you know that carnality is defined not just at, when we think of being carnal, we think of like sexual sins. But carnality is anything we try to do, uh, let, me, let me say it this way, anything spiritual that we try to do in a fleshly way. In other words, we can try to do the right thing, but it's not just a matter of us trying to do the right thing. It's a matter of us doing the right thing the right way. That's not nitpicky. That's not saying that God is looking for points to take off. God just designed us to be able to function very simply. In fact, it was described in the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve were placed in the garden it says they were naked and not ashamed. Now, in our minds, because of the fall of man, because of, of human nature, naked, we think of sexuality. We think of something that uh, it's when, when it's separated from husband and wife relationship, it's something that's embarrassing. Nobody wants to be caught naked, you know. But they were naked and unashamed. And what that meant is that their lives were so open and so pure before God and before each other that there was no need for covering. Now, there's a lot of stuff we would need to talk about to fully understand that. But whenever Adam and Eve sinned and transgressed, the first thing they did, as far as we can tell, is they went and found fig leaves. It was probably too far to get to the elephant ear plant. So they found the biggest leaves they could get. They found fig leaves. And 
whenever God began to walk, as he did every day, and commune with them in the garden, see, the, the, the root of sin is to destroy our communion with the Father. That, that's when all is said and done. Jesus said the thief comes for nothing but to kill and steal and destroy. But another way of looking at it is that he wants to be sure that we lose the essence of communion with him, of communication with him. And uh, they were covered with fig leaves and God said, hey, what's going on here? And remember, when God asks a question, he doesn't need information. We need information. We need clarification. And she, they said, well, we did this and we realized we were naked, so we went and covered ourselves. And God said, who told you you were naked? This is not something that's normal. This is not something that was part of your normal existence. They had sinned. They had fallen. And what I'm trying to communicate today is that as God brings us back to himself. Now, remember, when all of this started, we said that we are forgiven uh, in the past from the penalty of sin. When we come to Jesus, we don't have to worry about hell anymore. I don't mean that flippantly. I don't mean that carelessly. But the hell issue, the punishment issue, is settled at the beginning. Now, <clears throat> we, we know that we're delivered from the penalty of sin. We know that the day will come when we either die or the Lord returns, that we will be delivered from the very presence of sin, possibility of sin. But right now we are being delivered from the power of sin. It's an ongoing thing. It's not that we have some victory, but it's this victory, unlike the victory of the past and the victory of the future, this victory is progressive. We are growing. We are returning to something that we lost. We lost that ability to be so pure and undefiled before the Lord that at least in a spiritual sense we stand before him naked and unashamed. And he's wanting to restore that. And one of the most difficult things for us to understand is that the Christian life does not work when we try to live it with deception. It doesn't work when we try to live it on our terms. It doesn't work when we try to live it, as we've said, cafeteria style. I'll take a little of this, a little of that. And um, remember, I, I know I say it a lot, but according to Romans, the great heart of the matter with man's fall is the desire to make God into something we like better than what he is. So with that along the way, let's look at matters of the heart. And we are going to look at a very odd passage of scripture. It's not odd in the sense of giggly funny. It's odd in that it just doesn't seem like the God we serve. We put so much energy into serving a God that we say is loving and kind God. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more. There's nothing you will do that will make him love you less. That's true. But there is a very real thing called the fear of God, the terror of the Lord. The scripture says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. <laughs> and we've got to balance that out. It's not a balance of good and bad. It's a blending of two truths that are equally true. 
the terror of the Lord and, and the love of God. Now let's read this strange event, Acts chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira also sold a piece of property. Now it says also. What we find out from Acts 2, 3, and 4 is that there were a lot of people in Jerusalem that had come for the Feast of Pentecost. They stayed over. And it would be like us quadrupling in attendance overnight with people that were visiting town from out of town. We'd have to find places for them to stay. We'd have to have food for them to eat. And one of the ways that the church was handling this is that people who had extra things, it's not a requirement. We don't have to become a, a commune. We don't have to become uh, communistic. We don't have to become socialistic. We don't have to redistribute wealth. That's not a command of scripture. But they found the best way to deal with the crisis they had at that moment is if anybody had anything you don't need, sell it, bring the money, and we'll try to meet the needs of all of these people. Um, uh, so that's where that little word also comes from. People were doing that and were told about a man named Joseph who was a Levite from Cyprus that sold a piece of land. So Ananias and Sapphira also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Now, I want to tell you something. There's a lot of dynamic doctrine that hinges on a word or two. How is it that Satan has so filled your heart? Hey, this is, this is a man who knows what it's like to have Satan get a hook in your heart. He goes from one moment saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but your father in heaven and you are a blessed man. And then before anybody can cough, he opens his mouth again and Jesus says, Satan, get behind me. This man knows what it's like to be a servant of God and then let your guard down and the enemy get a hook. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get a victim's mindset. Don't take the Flip Wilson approach of the 60s that says the devil made me do it. Uh, it, it's not something, the devil's not more powerful than the Lord. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. But I'm telling you, even the best among us can have a moment where we are incredibly carnal and, and open to the suggestions of the devil. So Peter wasn't being critical. He knew what it was like to be on the other end of this thing. And he said, how is it that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and uh, it has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Peter, that wasn't a, a light thing he was saying because in the Gospels, Peter knew there came a moment in time. There came a moment in time. Now, Judas had been a thief from the beginning. The Bible says whenever the woman poured out the expensive ointment on the feet of Jesus, that Judas said, why this waste? This money could have been 
uh, or this perfume could have been sold and the money given to the poor. And the writer of the gospel says this, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor. He, he said this because he was a thief from the beginning and all through the ministry, all through the ministry, the gospel says Judas used to help himself to the money that didn't belong to him. It's like a story Adrian Rogers tells about a man that came into the church one day and opened the door looking for uh, the, the janitor's closet, looking for a broom. And he not only found a broom, he found five brand new brooms. This was a little church. They, 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 but there were five brand new brooms. And in a rage, he went to the pastor and said, I want to know why our money's being spent on five brooms. You're wanting us to send money to missions. You're wanting us to buy Sunday school material. You're wanting us to help the poor. And there's five brooms in that closet. I want to know why. And the pastor said, I don't know. Maybe we sweep a lot. I, maybe there was a sale on brooms. I, I don't know. But don't fall out of fellowship over this. And you'd be surprised how easily people do that. And at the dinner that night at church, pastor, he said uh, to the secretary treasurer of the church, he said, hey, let me ask you a question. So-and-so got blown, uh, blew this way out of proportion. We have five brooms in the closet and he got beside himself over it. And he said we were wasting money. What's going on with five brooms? And the treasurer smiled. He said, you've got to understand, pastor, it's very disturbing when you see everything you've given this year tied up in five brooms. Well, Judas was a thief. And this is what Peter and the gospel writers understood. There was a moment in time because of the way he trafficked in that kind of attitude. And there was a moment at the evening of the supper that Satan filled him. Satan entered him. And I don't, I don't believe that Christians, uh, the, the question is, can a Christian be demon possessed? The, the short answer is, I don't, I don't believe a Christian can be demon possessed. But I do think this, Christians that, pay, that play games and traffic in darkness open themselves up progressively and with time to the darkness of evil. So we need to be careful and we need to stay as far away from demonic involvement as we can. He said, why has Satan filled your heart so that you would lie to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? And now Peter isn't condemning him for not giving all the money. No. Verse 4, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Now that's a mysterious thing that we'll explain in just a moment. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. That's kind of extreme. And a great fear seized all who heard what happened, rightly so. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire 
to test the spirit of the Lord. Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. <clears throat> at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men uh, came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is a, a terrifying, if this doesn't scare you, you haven't really read the story and let it sink in. Here is a church that is thriving, that is growing, that is enjoying the presence of God. And all of a sudden, the same church that's saying there's nothing you can do to make him love you more and there's nothing you'll do that'll make him love you less has two unplanned funerals within hours of each other. And great fear came over all who heard about it. There's another statement. We didn't read all of the text. There's another statement. It says, nobody else joined themselves to the church. See, some people say Ananias and Sapphira were just church joiners. And that's why God killed them. But that's still, that's, that doesn't answer the question. If God, you know, it's a mystery why God killed uh, Christians uh, or church members. But it's also a mystery why God doesn't kill everybody that fails and sins. There's a lot more heinous sins than lying about a piece of property going on. No, there was something more at work here. Uh, it, it reminds me of a story about Abraham Lincoln when they were working, I think, to get uh, the, the language of the, uh, of the amendment. He had done the Emancipation Proclamation, but knowing that to make it the law of the land, uh, an amendment had to be done prohibiting slavery. And he was working on that just months before his death, trying to get it where it would, where it would pass the, each state legislature. And he said, we've got to, he said, we can't speak in half truths. And they were, they were saying, yeah, if we do this. And he said, but that's not true. That's only half true. And they were going back and forth. And Abraham Lincoln said, gentlemen, let me ask you this. How many legs does a dog have if you call his tail a leg? Well, the men thought about it and said, he has five. If you call his tail a leg, he has five legs. And Abraham Lincoln said, no, he has four legs. Just because you call his tail a leg doesn't make it one. He said, and you men are trying to create a law that says something without saying anything. A tail is still a tail. You can't lie and make a tail a leg. He said, we have to walk in honesty. And loved ones, we need to understand that what God is after. Now, I don't mean we're not talking about like having nude Sunday, but God is after us to have the kind of relationship with him that we walk with him naked and unashamed. Nothing, the, remember we talked about the, the single eye, the unfolded cloth. He, he was so proud of Nathaniel. He said, because this is an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. In other words, he was saying he, he, he is honest and he wants truth to be truth and he wants truth to be understood and he commended him for that. Of all the things he could have commended him for, that was one. He said, if he says something, he represents the truth well. I believe that God is wanting to do a work in our midst so that in the days ahead, 
when we start to embrace the presence of God as never before because of what he does, when we start to embrace the work of God as never before because of what he does, I want you to know that the tenderness and integrity of heart is one of the hallmarks that God Almighty is looking for. Let me say it one more time. The tenderness of heart and integrity of heart will be the hallmark of houses that enjoy God's presence in the new era ahead. There's a new day coming. There is a new day coming. There is a new day coming. There is a new era in the church coming. God has been purging. God has been cleansing. God has been shaking the eye teeth out of us. And we've blamed politicians and we've blamed everybody else that can be blamed, including other Christians. But God is shaking us himself. We, uh, I, I can't remember who it was, but it, I was at the prophetic conference up at Morningstar the past few days. And somebody said, the church and the prophets and the pastors have got to learn that we must stop trying to put out fires that God has lit and not everything that's happening is an attack of the devil. And not everything that's happening is the failure of a group or a failure of the church or the failure of the pastors or whoever it is. Some things God has set on fire because our God is a consuming fire and he's cleansing and he's purging. And I believe one of the things that God is looking for is tenderness and integrity of heart. So that when he begins to move in our midst, we don't have to drop dead at the glory that is revealed, at the presence that is revealed. Now let's talk a minute about the background. Jerusalem was overflowing. Uh, the, the ye old Hampton Inns were all full. The restaurants had long lines waiting and people had come to stay for a few days, but many of them, history historians tell us, had stayed for weeks and for months. And there was a difficulty because the church had these new converts. It began with 3,000, and then people were coming by the thousands, and they had no place to live. They had no place to eat. And the church just said, we've got to take care of these folks. They said, Jesus fed the crowds that came to hear him in the wilderness. We've got to feed the crowds that have come to our fellowship. And we don't know how we're going to do it. So people began to sell things. Passover was one of uh, just uh, uh, maybe three festivals that would have packed out, I forget, three or three or four festivals that would have packed out Jerusalem. It was a requirement if you could come to come to some of these festivals. And Jerusalem, conservative estimates go as low as 40,000, um, but average estimates, around 100,000 was the population of Jerusalem. It's a little hard. You got to understand Jerusalem, the old city, the Jerusalem that David knew would fit on our property. I, I don't mean in here, but on our property. The old, the old city of Jerusalem covered about 12 and a half, 13 acres. That's this property, not counting what we have across the street. But then you read in, in Samuel where David went out, in 2 Samuel, David expanded Jerusalem, and Jerusalem got a lot bigger. 
And also, if you lived outside the city walls, but in times of crisis, you came into the city for protection, you were considered a resident of Jerusalem. So it was probably at least 100,000. And many conservative scholars say that there could have been, if you include all the farmers, all the shepherds, it could have included as many as 600,000 people that would have made up the population of Jerusalem. On top of that, potentially hundreds of thousands of Jews would come in for these special feasts. And then God pours out His Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now Pentecost was a celebration of the giving of the law and the, and the, the summer wheat harvest. It had nothing to do with the outpouring of the Spirit as, as we understand Pentecost now. It was a festival of, of harvest and the giving of the law. And now God adds a whole new dimension to it. Some say that Pentecost was the birthday of the church. And you have hundreds of thousands of people that are added to the mix. And many of them probably stayed. And this is the way they handled it. This is in your notes, or I think Acts 4, 32, 36. You have that? Okay. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, um, in them all, that there were no needy persons among them. Now, Jesus said, you're going to have the poor with you always. And, and we're going to have the poor with us always till Jesus comes. But what this tells us is that in special times, if the church does what the church ought to do, it's almost like poverty is eliminated, at least in the sense that every need is met. Uh, the reason for from time to time, those who own lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. When it says it puts it at the apostles' feet, it means they were given to, it was given to the apostles for them to distribute. Um, uh, it was, it was uh, another word for it was the they. That's what Corinthians says. Let every man lay by him in store or lay by him in the they. We get the word thesaurus from it. It was the uh, treasury box. Um, and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus. Now it's interesting about Joseph. Uh, he wasn't supposed to own any land being a Levite, but he wasn't supposed to own the land in the land. His land was in Cyprus. His land was in another place. So he sold that. Now his name was Joseph, but they called him Barnabas. This wasn't a one and done thing that, that Barnabas did. He was known for doing this kind of thing so much that he wasn't even known by his real name, Joseph. They gave him a nickname, Barnabas, which meant the one who helps or the one who encourages. And he sold a field he owned and brought the money, put it at the apostles' feet. Now that sets the stage in chapter 4 for the great event of chapter 5 that we just read about. Now when we look at Barnabas, this is the same Barnabas that traveled with Paul phenomenal life, phenomenal ministry. He was a helper. Not only did he help people practically, he, Paul would have been a lot longer being accepted 
into the church. He was such a persecutor if it hadn't been for the help of Barnabas. Now, but Ananias and Sapphira, they have an evil motivation. Now, loved ones, I'm going to just, I'm going to talk like a Dutch uncle to you or a pastor during the next few minutes here. I want you to understand how deceitful this is. Greed for money and greed for honor are often linked together. Be careful, be careful of anything in you where you have to receive credit for what you've done. Where you want people to know, I paid for that, or I did that. And it's not that it's wrong for people to know you did that or you paid for that. Nothing wrong for that at all. But sometimes God will let you do something noteworthy and you'll be totally overlooked. And it's not because the church is ungrateful or the person you did it for is ungrateful. Sometimes God will just block things to let your heart shine in the sun. What are you like? Do you have to have the credit? Do you have to get the glory? And um, greed for money and greed for honor are often linked together. Here was the plan. They wanted to give uh, as people like Barnabas had done, but they wanted to do it to create a narrative that was false. Falsely enlarged both with their gift and their prominence within the family. And loved ones, let me tell you, I know it's hard to believe when you look at me, but I'm getting older. And as I am getting older, I am more and more aware of how damaging pride and tainted ambition, not only among church members, but among pastors, among church leaders. I, I, am, I am becoming more aware of how damaging pride and tainted ambition can be to the cause of Christ. I, I'm, I'm beginning to hear this a lot. I'm reaching the age that I'm hearing this a lot in my circle. Well, I want to know what my legacy is going to be. What am I going to be remembered for? And we ought to think that way. We ought to think, you know, we ought to think about our legacy. Are people going to be glad I'm gone? Are people going to miss me? There's nothing wrong with thinking about a legacy. But loved ones, I'm concerned at how many people I'm seeing that are changing things poorly in order to have a legacy for themselves. Now, I, I know this is crude, and I don't mean to be insensitive to anyone that has just had a loved one die. Please understand, I'm not being insensitive, but I, I like what Tony Campolo said, preaching to a group of pastors. He said, you guys need to not worry so much about your legacy. He says, you're all negotiating, trying to get titles. He said, I look out at you, and I've seen your, your tags. Some of you are mega reverend. Some of you are most high exalted doctorate. You know, some of you are this, that, and the other. He said, right now, he said, and the older you are, the more you're into this, you're jockeying for a title. But he said, I want to remind every one of you, it's not the title that you have. It's the testimony that you leave. And this is the insensitive part, but it's true. He said, it may happen next week. It may happen a year from now. It may happen five years from now, but you're going to drop dead and they're going to take you and put you in a box and everybody's going to come look at you in church and cry over you. They're going to close the box, take you to the cemetery, throw dirt in your face, go back to church and eat potato salad. 
He said, and at that moment, nobody will be interested in your title. They only want to know your testimony. Nobody celebrates saying my grandpa was doctor so-and-so. They celebrate saying my grandpa was a man of God. So we need to understand, we really need to understand that one of the lessons the church has got to learn right now so that we can walk forward with clean hands. You want to leave a good legacy, but you want the Lord to establish the legacy. You want your family to promote the legacy. It's not up to you and me to decide how we're going to be remembered by building up ourselves. Oh, this is amazing preaching. Okay. Now here's the problem. They were trying to build their own legacy. They were trying to get a wing of the church named after them or whatever. I don't know what their motive was. But this happens sometimes. And can I tell you this? A lot of times this kind of nonsense goes on and nobody knows it. Nobody knows it. Um, but every now and then for the good of the body and in the mercy of God, he will expose some of our silliness. And the word of the Lord, the word of the Holy Spirit came to Peter. And, and listen, you know, I want you to understand, whenever the Lord chooses to deal with our sin, how we respond is a matter sometimes of life and death. I'm not going to tell a story. I, I wouldn't want to embarrass the family or the person or their memory. But I, I, I remember the first time, and, and it's the only time that I can recall, that I ever stood by a graveside after doing the funeral, looking down and realized this man did not have to die. This man should not have died. This man should not be here today. And you say, well, that's pretty judgmental. I know, and that's why I'm not giving any details. But I, I, think, I think his response to what God was doing in his life actually shortened his life. You say, oh, that's not biblical. Well, let's just look at today, for instance. <laughs> or look at those that were in rebellion against Moses. Look at Uzzah who touched the ark. Paul said that many are asleep now because of their disregard for the Lord's Supper. No, Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He said, I want you. There's a man that will not turn from his sin. He's arrogant in his sin. I am going to tell you to pray the hand of God off of this man. Turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that he might learn not to blaspheme. Now, this message is not about us doing that. I'm just trying to say, God, God has, he's just not the grandpa you thought he was. He is the father. Well, that's another sermon. Not that I have anything against grandpas. But the Holy Spirit gave a word to Peter. He, Peter asked her questions to confirm what he felt the Holy Spirit was saying to him. And, it, and, and by the way, those of you that might have a revelatory gift, uh, first of all, there's very few people that are in a position of authority to use that. So be careful. Sometimes you're just a gossip. But um, if you have that revelatory gift, it's wise instead of coming in with guns blazing, accusing, find out the facts because you might have misunderstood something. You might have really misunderstood. Oh, I know I heard God. I, the hearing's not the problem. A donkey can hear God. 
it's not a problem for us to hear God. The problem is, do we, do we understand what we've heard? So he confirms the facts and then he gives the explanation of the sin. He said, how is it that Satan has filled your heart to lie to man and to God? You say, well, what about the money? The money was not the problem. In fact, Peter explained that. He said the problem was not that Ananias and Sapphira kept back part of the price. Not only were they not required to give the full price, they weren't required to give anything. They weren't required to give anything at all. They weren't required to sell the land. They weren't required to give anything at all. They could have given a small part and kept the rest. Or they could have given, you know, like a tithe and kept the rest. Or they could have given it all. They could have done any of those things. It was up to them. The problem in the sin is that they lied in order to create a false narrative. Listen to me, loved ones. Their sin was in not in not giving all. Their sin is lying about what they did give. The purpose of their gift was not to honor the Lord. It was not to bless the congregation. The goal, very simply, was to elevate their standing in the community so that people would look at them and say, we're lucky to have them as part of our family. Now, why did God deal so severely? This is, this is where the rubber meets the road now. Some say it was typical of the early days of every move of God. Every time God did something new, he was very severe to teach them. And that, you can make a case for that. I don't think it's a rule, but I think we see it from time to time. Whenever the ark was coming back to Jerusalem, they put the ark on a wagon. That was mistake number one, uh, that they put it on a wagon. Number two mistake was that they put it on a wagon, uh, pulled by oxen. That was mistake number three, because it was to be not touched at all, but poles were to go through the rings that had been built on the ark and then it was to be carried by the Levites and and the priests they all had their function and it was not to be transported that way and the Bible says that as they were transporting it with praise going on all around the oxen stumbled let me tell you you can get the strongest prettiest oxen you want but they're going to stumble somewhere along the line they're going to stumble somewhere along the line because the oxen are not designed to carry the holy. And when it stumbled, it looked like the ark was going to fall. And I, I'd say, God bless Uzzah for taking care of the ark. He puts out his hand to steady it. But there was something in the heart of that man that we can't see, that we don't understand, it was either in the heart of the man or the guilt might have been on the part of the priests and the Levites who knew better. I mean, Uzzah could have been an innocent victim. We don't know. That's the nature of these things. There's, there's, there's never a full explanation outwardly of what's going on inwardly. But he put his hand out and he steadied it. And I would want to say, Whoo, good move, Uzzah, good move. You kept the ark out of the mud. But then when they said, come on, Uzzah, let's go, he didn't get up. God killed him. You say, well, that don't seem fair. Well, David didn't think so either. David said, find some rental property, go put it over there. 
leave it there. And he goes in prayer to God angry and says, how in the world am I going to serve you if you go around killing people who are trying to do the right thing? See, you've got to understand, if you're going to traffic before a holy God, if you want to have the audacity to say, we want God in our church, you can't make the mistake that Israel made of sending things, holy things, like the ark into battle and treating it like a good luck charm. Oh, I'm telling you, we need a return of the fear of God. We need a return of the terror of the Lord so that we can open our heart to the grace of the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. David pouted. He had been dancing. He had been kicking up his heels. Everything's wonderful. Is the ark coming home? And then when God brought judgment to refine and to purify, he is mad. I, I'm not going to ask you to show your hands, even though you're not on camera. But how many of you have ever been mad at the way God dealt with something in your life or in the church? Boy, I know I have. I was really mad about something the other day. It was trivial, but I was tired. I don't know. I'll tell you something else I'm learning. Um, the, 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 the more my time with the Lord is interrupted, the more prone I am to depression and, and frustration. Um, and I think I'm a pretty wonderful guy. But the, but the more the enemy is able to, to distract me and keep me from the presence of the Lord, the more prone I am to frustration. And I was really frustrating. My, my schedule had been messed up for two or three days. I mean, I'd been praying and all that, but it just wasn't like I normally do. And uh, I, was, I was really irritated that something had happened. And my irritation turned into anger. And I just, I got mad. And I, I felt in my heart, it came to my mind. I don't want to say it was the Lord said it. But the book of, of Jonah came to mind where Jonah was angry and the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? In, in other words, God was saying, Jonah, is this really the proper response? Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah was so mad. He said, yes, I do well to be angry. He was like saying, you're, you're dead gum right. I'm, I'm angry and I deserve to be angry. And then I felt like that verse came to me, do you do well to be angry? And I said, no, I don't do well to be angry. This is, this is a disproportionate response. This is not something to be this angry about. It's an inconvenience. Not a, and, and I said, Lord, I'm sorry. Then I thought, hey, hey, I'm doing better than Jonah. At least I knew, <laughs> at least I knew I don't do well to be angry. Then I got under condemnation for being thinking I was better than Jonah. You know what? When we get away from the presence of God, our mind just gets twisted. Our mind gets twisted. And I don't have time to go into detail, but God put David through the passing of time, prayer, repentance, um, uh, almost overkill 
on how to move the ark. And God brought phenomenal victory as the ark was, was, brought, was brought home. Um, but yeah, sometimes in early days, God will say, this is not going to be permitted. Um, some say modern readers are just missing. Oh, I didn't put this in the notes. Some say God killed him because he just wasn't a Christian, wasn't, uh, wasn't a believer. But loved ones, that's such a, that's such a silly thing to say that uh, God will kill somebody because they're an unbeliever, but he won't kill a believer. And um, God loves us whether we're saved or lost and to just create this climate where if you're not a believer you're indispensable that does not commend the love of God I don't want us to be the kind of church that promotes that um, I would say that there's the fact that Uzzah was in on the move is probably a pretty good indicator that he was a leader in the religious community but some say that we're just missing something because Peter said, you've not just lied to men, you've lied to God. Isn't every lie? If I lie to Corey, am I not also lying before God? Because God knows my heart. But we'll explain that in just a moment. In fact, right now, what I want us to do is just go to the Christian life lessons, go to the end of the message, and let's talk about four things that I believe God wants to drive deep into our heart as we move to the next era of the church. I'm telling you, we are approaching a new era. We are about to begin to experience a new presence. I'm not just, I'm not just giving you church talk. I'm saying something significant is coming, and we want to be ready for that. And one of the things that we must do is to be sure that in these matters of the heart, we're walking in integrity and purity. Here's number one. How do we get past the problem of Acts chapter 5 so that we can have the revival of the rest of the book? Number one, live your life and give within the boundaries of God's grace that is extended toward us individually and corporately. Guys, I want to tell you this is a difficult thing for us to understand, but we don't all have the same grace. Oh, we have the same grace by which we stand. We have the same grace that brings us to Jesus. But not everybody has grace to do this. And not everybody has grace to do that. And even if you have grace to do this, two of you have grace to do this, this one may seem to have greater gifts than this one. There, not every pastor is equal. Uh, some pastors are very strong in some areas, but the pastor right across town is very weak in that area. But what you may find is the pastor that's weak in this area is very strong in this area, and this pastor is not. God puts every one of us with our warts and all in places to serve Him and we have been so busy in the last 40 years trying to build Christian kingdoms that we have forgotten our anointing doesn't extend everywhere. You need to be careful before you decide that if I'm doing a good job on Oak Street that I would also do a good job on you know, Pine Avenue. I'm not talking against multiple locations. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying that there is a principle in the New Testament 
that tells us that every man needs to labor within the confines of his gift and not every church is going to be the same size, not every ministry is going to be the same dynamic. And we need to learn this. Hear me now. Don't expect too much of yourself. Now, you ought to live up to everything that God's put in your heart, but don't expect too much of others. David wanted to build the temple, and God said, that's a good thing. I'm going to bless you for wanting to do it, but it is not your anointing to, to build the temple. That's for someone else. And loved ones, we're in an age right now because of the frustration that COVID brought uh, and, and all the issues, societal issues related to COVID. We are in one of the most difficult places I have ever known in my life. And one of the biggest problems is we expect so much from everybody else. And it paralyzes them. It divides the body. And you need to be careful or you'll expect so much of yourself that you can't measure up to. Let's move down the list just a little bit here. Guard yourself against unrealistic expectations. I think your notes have has a wrong word. Uh, but the word is expectations. Guard against unrealistic expectations. I think exceptions is what you have. Uh, expectations. Be careful that you don't fall into the trap of assigning intent to others' words and actions. You don't have the right to say, Pastor Corey, I can't believe you said that. That means da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da might not even be in Corey's heart. But we're in an age right now, if you don't speak my language, you don't have a right to speak. And if you don't share my opinion... You don't have the right to an opinion. And what we're doing is we're discovering those of us that will learn. The rest of us are just going to stay mean and bitter till we die. I'm serious. You're going to stay, you're going to die with that bitterness you've been carrying for three years. And you're going to wonder why the world isn't coming to Jesus. You're going to wonder why the church has lost everything when God is trying to teach you something through this incredibly difficult time we've been through, but you insist on allowing no view except your own. Don't have unrealistic expectations. Don't assign intent. You don't know a man's heart. You don't know a woman's heart. You know, I, I got a letter that was written by a group of pastors in Columbia, which basically said we ought to continue to allow abortion as a sign of the love of God. And I, I, think, it's, I think it is dead wrong. I think it's horrific. And I, I, I started to say, Lord, I need to make a statement against this. And, and I felt like the Lord said, don't you know your people know better than this? And I said, I believe it. He said, you don't know their hearts. He said, it's possible to be dead wrong, but to have a heart that can be redeemed. He said, try loving them first. Don't agree with them. You don't have to cave in to what they're saying, but pray for them and love them and see if I can't bring them to a place of sensibility. We, we, we've got to, and I know that's difficult. And then when you do that, you're accused of being a compromiser. 
I, I, I'm not compromising. I think the letter was wrong. I think the letter was from hell. I think the letter made, brought great joy to Satan. I mean, is that clear enough for you? But if there's a chance I can redeem my brothers and sisters, I want to try that first. Guard against unrealistic expectations. Don't get involved in the assignment of intent. And loved ones, I know I'm beating this to death. Somebody asked me a few weeks ago, Pastor, when are you going to stop talking about this? And I said, as soon as the church gets it. Live the balance of gifts and graces. I just got to dig a little bit deeper here. I think of a tale of two wives, and we don't, we don't have two wives in our marriages. We don't believe that's healthy or right. But it was allowed in the Old Testament, and a man named Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Panina. And Hannah had no children. Panina had several children. And the relationship between Panina and Hannah was so bad that the Bible called Panina the adversary of Hannah. And she said, you're under judgment. You can't please your husband. Da, da. The husband tried. Elkanah tried. He went to Hannah and he said, sweetheart, don't you know that you're better to me than 10 sons? I love you so much. It doesn't matter if you never give me sons, you know, like Panina has. Panina's Panina, but you're Hannah and you don't need to labor under this. But Panina kept, kept the word is, was, is translated, kept wounding her kept wounding her. Just, just when the wound started to heal, she'd open it back up again. And you, you read the story, you don't like Panina. You love Hannah and you want God to come through for Hannah. And God did. God did. God gave her a beautiful son with unique giftings called Samuel. And we know Samuel's life and, and Samuel changed the course of history in Israel. But loved ones, we've got to understand, and this is so difficult, Penina was still the husband, or excuse me, the wife of her husband, just like Hannah was. And God is working in the churches of America to get us to understand that everybody that's different from us is not our enemy. And everybody that seems to have more blessing than us is not our enemy. We're having to learn that God will prosper one this way and not prosper one this way. God will give increase here but not give increase here because he was preparing. There had to be a special heart and a special womb that would give birth to Samuel. And Samuel would have never happened if Hannah wasn't pitted against Panina. Oh, loved ones, we are being so mean. And we're, you say, what are you fighting against? Meanness. That's why God said you don't treat curses with curses. You deal with curses by blessing. You don't deal with mean behavior by mean behavior. You do good to those that despitefully use you. And it's a hard lesson to learn. This has been the three most difficult pastoral years in my life because, because of COVID and because of the dissent in our society, 
The church, by and large, almost all churches, by and large, have decided the way we're going to win this is to fight everybody that doesn't see what we see or feel what we feel. And by God, we're going back to the old ways if it kills us. And they don't understand it's killing us. Oh, no, God started some fires, and we better let the fires burn. And I'm not talking about in society or in downtown areas. I'm talking about in our sacred cows, in our sacred things that we have put up. We need to understand that God has put you where you are. You are who you are. You were born when you were. You are in the town that you're in because God in his sovereignty knows that there's something that needs to be done that only you can do. And loved ones, I want to tell you, you can be mad. You can be angry. You can be ticked off. But at your funeral, I'll preside over you and talk about how good you were, but everybody in church will know you were as mean as a snake. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not saying that's not a threat. I'm saying that's where we are. Corey, you might ought to preach next week too. I don't know. <laughs> in the last three years, I've been upset at what God has corrected in me. I, I, I have told him I'm not the one needs correcting. Let me, let me give you the inside scoop. But you know what? I believe I'm becoming the best pastor I've been in my life. I believe I'm preaching the best I've ever preached in my life. I believe I'm praying like I've never prayed before in my life. Why? Because God sets fires. And he says, I want you to stand before me naked and unashamed. Okay, that's the first thing. Live and give within the boundaries of God's grace. Uh, don't try to be someone else and don't expect someone else to be you or even what you want. Here's number two. Understand that carnal thinking and reasoning is never in line with the spirit-filled way of living. Peter asked a question that seems odd. He said, what made you think of doing such a thing? the way you've been taught as a Christian to think before Christ, the way you've been taught as a Jew to think, what would make you think for a moment that this was the right thing to do? <laughs> you go to the bank, the teller gives you too much change. If the wrong thing enters your heart, you say, praise God, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord has provided and then when you get caught, well, I just, I, I thought God wanted me to have it. Loved ones, God does not have to rob a bank to be your provider. Well, I know that it's adultery, but God could have stopped me if I was wrong. God's the author of love and you just, true love can't wait. Loved ones, it doesn't work that way. God does not break the laws in order to accommodate your need. Let's go to number three. I, I do want to say this about number two. I, I am as serious as a heart attack on this. We are moving to a place where God is, is going to say no more. Drop that flirtatious relationship with someone that's not your spouse. Drop it. 
oh, it's just innocent. No, it's not. You imagine them undressed. You think of where you could have a rendezvous with them. You think my life will be better if I could have sex with them. You call that innocent? No, no, no. Well, I'd never do it. Well, you don't know what you'd do. You're not the master of passion. That's why Paul said, let's see, Timothy, you asked me about youthful lust. What do we do? Run! <laughs> Flee youthful lust. A man of such character as Jacob realized when he was in a moment, a slave has the opportunity to have relations with a pampered Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, upper echelon woman in, in Egyptian culture. And he realized, if I'm going to survive this, I have to run. Loved ones, we have, we, we have been deceived into thinking we can handle a lot more than we can handle. There's a reason to have rules. There's a reason to stay away from uh, situations of temptation. None of us are big enough to handle it. None of us are strong enough to handle it. And we've got to understand that if we don't let God restrict our lives with a certain anointing, and, and then if, if we don't understand that carnal thinking and reasoning will never do the work of God, the third thing, letter C on your outline will happen, we will fail to respond quickly and thoroughly to the move of the Holy Spirit. And we'll find ourselves justifying. What did it mean you have lied not just to man but to God? Loved ones, I want to say it is one thing to lie to a human being. That's not good. That, that, that is the eighth commandment. You know, don't bear false witness. Don't lie to a human being. Sometimes we lie to a human being out of dishonesty, out of fear, out of, out of confusion, what do I do? Uh, or even out of ignorance and misinformation. We may not have even intended to lie, but we tell a lie because we don't fully understand what's going on. That's one thing. But it is another thing for us to, to lie, and you can use the word deny, when our deception or our evil heart is exposed and challenged by the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to lie to God. I may say, uh, you know, to my boss, why are you late? I may say, well, I, you know, I had a flat tire. Well, and you didn't have a flat tire. You just slept too long. That's one thing. That's, that, that's opened a door that you really don't want to open but it's relatively benign. And there are times you don't know what to say. Does this dress make me look fat? <laughs> you just, you know, that's, that's one thing. But listen, listen. When the Holy Spirit brings revelation to a moment... and you continue or persist in a lie... That is lying to God. That is another thing altogether. I, I'm not, and, and we, all, we all can fall into that trap, but I remember one time the Lord spoke to me. I was a youth pastor and spoke to me about somebody in the group that they were having sexual relations with somebody. And I, I challenged them in the altar. 
I said, this is, I, I, I said, are you walking in moral purity? He said, yes, I am. He said, I have thought battles, but I haven't done anything. And the Lord showed me a person, a time, a place. I said, let me ask you another question. Have you been with so-and-so at this place and at this time? All the color left their face. And they looked at me and said, no, that has never happened. I don't know, you know, I don't know what to do then. I don't want to call him a liar, even though I think he's lying to me and God. And I, I prayed some generic prayer. It turned out he was, and all kinds of trouble happened. And this is what he told me. He said, I felt the Lord trying to help me. He said, I felt like God was trying to help me. I even felt in that afternoon when I was saying, Lord, I've blown it. I don't know what to do. He said, I felt the Lord said, go tell Stephen he'll help you. And then he said, you confronted me. And I lied. And I, 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 I said, why did you lie? He said, I don't know. He said, other than being ashamed. But he said, I'll tell you this. At that moment, a light went out in my soul. At, at that moment, I realized, and this is very serious, this is his, his words, not mine. He said, at that moment, the Holy Spirit was no longer trying to help me get this resolved. At that moment, I felt the Holy Spirit became my enemy. And it was as though, again, his words, it was as though the Lord said to me, if you're not going to deal with this, I'll have to deal with this. And I can't tell the rest of the story because it, 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 it is too much and you don't need to know it. But it, it turned out the person came back to the Lord, but not after a lot of legal problems, not after a lot of moral problems, and after a destiny that basically got written off. That's when you are lying to the Lord. You see, you can lie to your spouse. You can lie to your pastor. You can lie to yourself. But the moment the Holy Spirit comes in and begins to deal with you, especially through a loved one or a friend, when a loved one looks at you and says, this is what I feel, tell me, what's happening, and then you lie then, you have upped the ante. You're not just lying to your spouse. You're lying to God. You're not just lying to your father. You're lying to God. We better hurry here. Um, if you don't understand this principle, you can end up with a hardened heart like Pharaoh, where Pharaoh goes through that cycle 10 times of yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And, and Achan, who was sinning when they went into the promised land by stealing the clothing and the treasure and hiding it under his tent, even Achan may have received mercy of sorts when Joshua said, Achan, give God the glory and tell me what happened. See, even though Achan was going to be severely punished, Achan knew the mercy of God is in coming clean with God. Gehazi seemed to have lost his destiny in the way he tried to hide his sin regarding Naaman's reward to him, trying to hide it from Elisha. 
You say, well, pastor, what do I do if I'm, what do I do if I'm wrong? Well, let me give you a couple of quick examples before we wrap this up. David is guilty of murder, adultery, conspiracy, lying, a whole host of sins. Nathan the prophet comes to him knowing that it may be the last prophetic message he gives. It's, it's not easy to confront the king over the king's sin. A couple of times in scripture, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the prophet was told to go give your message and then run like crazy. And he told the story about that rich man who had many lambs that took the lamb of his neighbor, the only lamb. And David in great anger said, that man's going to die. David pronounced sentence on himself. He said, the man that did this, as God is my witness, he will die. And then Nathan took the risk of a lifetime. King David, you are that man. David could have said, how dare you talk to the king that way? I don't know where you're getting your revelation, but that's not true. I have not done it. But David did the most impossibly difficult thing he could do. He looked at Nathan and he said, I have sinned. And Nathan said, you have sinned. This is a grievous sin. This is a wretched sin. And you're going to pay for this sin. And then he said this, but the Lord has put away your sin. You say that sounds contradictory. No, the Lord was saying, this could have ended your life. This could have ended your legacy. This could have ended everything. But because you said, I, I have sinned, the Lord will show mercy to you. New Testament, Simon the sorcerer, and scholars go to great lengths to try to prove that Simon the sorcerer was never saved. There's only two problems with that. The Bible says that he believed and was baptized. Didn't say he made a pretense of it. He believed and was baptized. But he had been involved and been involved in the occult and he had a lot of baggage. I'll admit Simon the sorcerer had a lot of baggage. But when uh, Philip had preached and Simon had been saved and then the apostles come and they begin to preach and people are being filled with the Spirit. And, and Simon, who is used to gimmicks and, and the world's power, he goes to Peter and says, uh, here is silver and gold and I will pay you if you'll give me the power so that whoever I lay my hands on, they can have this kind of spiritual experience. And Peter, boy, Peter keeps showing up in this service. He says, you perish and your money with you for thinking that the gift of God can be bought with silver and with gold. You are in bitterness of heart. And in our vernacular, he would say, you may be a Christian, but you still have unresolved issues. You have such incredible bitterness in your heart and you don't have part nor lot in this matter. You're wanting to go on and get involved in ministry when you still need ministry and deliverance yourself. And Simon, who was used to being bowed down by people, bows down himself. And he says to the man that just rebuked him by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, Peter had no way of knowing this. 
<laughs> he says, pray for me that nothing you have said will occur to me and that the Lord will have mercy. And the indication is that that's what Peter did. Loved ones, we need to understand, this is the last one, it's better to be in the hands of God than in any other place when we've done wrong. That's why we should never lie to the Holy Ghost. That's why we should never try to strike a deal. <laughs> I know the scripture says it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God, and that's true. But it's equally true that it's a gracious thing to place ourselves in his hands for chastisement. When David counted Israel, now a census wasn't wrong in and of itself. God had commanded a census to be taken earlier, uh, generations earlier. But it was so they could allot the land and they could know what they're dealing with. But David wanted to take a census for one reason only, to see how big my army is. And, and even Joab, who is, would not have been an elder in our church, I'll tell you, much less a pastor. Joab said, may, your, may, you king, may the king rule forever. May the king live and his sons rule forever. May the Lord make you a thousand times greater than you are. But don't do this, David. Don't do this because this is out of a heart that wants to brag. This is out of a heart that wants to be elevated in the flesh. And God will judge you for this. It's a sad day when your poorest spiritual level is correcting the highest spiritual level. He said, please don't do this. But David said, I want it done. And Joab went and he brought back the census. And the moment the numbers came to David, instead of being proud, his heart was smitten. And again, through the prophet, God is going to judge you for this. You knew better than this. But God, in his incredible mercy, gives him three choices. He said, you can flee before your enemies. There'll be pestilence through the land. What was the other one? I forget. It was ugly. But he gave him three choices. And, and, this, is, and this is what... No, never mind. I better not say it. It'll be wrong. Um, and this is what David said, realizing he was caught, realizing judgment was coming. He said, it's better to be in the hands of the Lord than to be in the hands of man. Lord, you decide. And he was shown mercy. He understood that it's a gracious thing to place ourselves in the Lord's hands for chastisement. I want to tell you about a story I heard this in a private setting um, and then it was confirmed. Somebody else told it to me, but I still don't know if it's public knowledge. So I won't give the man's name, but it is a prophet that I have high regard for um, uh, known across the world. 98% of you would know it if I called his name. In the early days of his ministry, he was about to make a connection with some people that would make his ministry go from this to this. They wanted to know if he was a genuine prophet and don't, don't judge him because sometimes the flesh and the spirit can easily overlap each other, especially in prophetic giftings. 
and he overheard somebody talking about something that was coming up while he was waiting to be interviewed. And while he was interviewed and they, st- they talked for a little while, he, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he began to prophesy. And it was of God. He began to prophesy. And this is the way he explained it. He said, I began to see that what I heard over here, that's what I was prophesying about. And he said, I don't know exactly how it happened, but in my mind, I started including all the secret detail that I overheard and put it in my prophecy. He said it was right, but the problem was what I heard in the flesh, I made it sound like God was telling me. And he said that I went through a period, and I believe I've got this right, for seven years the Lord said I was forgiven and that he reaffirmed my destiny, and and God did. But he said, for seven years, I did not hear a single word of the Lord prophetically. And he said, for seven years, I paid the price for not doing the right thing the right way. Loved ones, I'm not here to fuss at you. We're not a church of humiliation. We don't believe in humiliating people. But I will tell you this. For us to be able to hold what God is about to do in this church, we have to have our hands clean. We have to have our lives clean. None of us are going to be perfect. I know that. I'm I'm not expecting everybody to be perfect. We are broken. We are shattered and God is healing us. I'm not expecting perfection. Please don't expect perfection from me because I'll disappoint you. But there's a difference between imperfection and impurity. There's a difference between forgetting something or saying something wrong or just having a bad moment and setting your heart to do evil. And I tell you what I really believe today. I believe, I believe this. It's one of the reasons I wanted a week off to really set my mind, to really set my heart, and to be a wonderful husband to my wife on our anniversary. (laughs) But I wanted to be sure I was hearing God clearly. This is a day when we have an opportunity to let go of stuff. Relationships that are not ours, to let go of feelings for somebody that is not yours, to stop cheating, to stop stealing, to stop lying, to stop compromising. Now, don't get me wrong. I I don't think for a minute that everybody that holds on to stuff is going to end up dead. That's not what I'm talking about at all. My emphasis is not on judgment. My emphasis is on the opportunity to walk away from judgment, cleansing. I wonder if we could just end today this way. If you're watching online, you don't know Jesus as your Savior. You you need to call the number that will be on your screen. And I know we've gone over, but it's, this, is ne- this is a necessity. We, the, the clock is not our master. It's a tool. But sometimes we go over when we have to, and we believe we have to. 
If you don't know Jesus, call the number. Give your heart to the Lord. If you're here in Brown Chapel and you don't know Jesus, come forward to one of the prayer teams. Give your heart to the Lord. And we want prayer teams to go ahead and move into position. But this is what I'd like to do today. I'm not going to have an altar call that says, okay, everybody's got sin in their life. If you, if you want to live, don't want to get struck dead, come on up and be prayed for. No, that's not what we're talking about. But God is saying, do you want to be part of the remnant? Do you want to walk in holiness? And, and loved ones, if you see somebody coming, their issue may be something that in our eyes is very, very small. Or it could be something that's very, very big. But the point is, we don't need to know. It's between them and Papa, between them and Father. And this is a day when the grace of God is being extended and he says, whosoever will may come. You say, well, people ought to confess their sin and have to pay for it. Yeah, and, and sometimes God knows that our suffering because of our sin has already taken place. That's why he looked at the woman taken in adultery and he said, go your way, sin no more. I believe this is one of those days where God is not saying, now come and you're going to be humiliated. I believe God is saying, come, come to me and then go your way and sin no more.